It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to this episode of Kennedy Saves the World. And today, once again, 20 years later, we have to save you from sociopathic murderers. Uh, it was 20 years ago that this case exploded in California. And there was one reporter whose reports I was absolutely, my ears were glued to the radio because at the time she was at KFI AM 640 in Los Angeles. And she had moved to Northern California to follow the case of Scott and Lacey Peterson and their unborn son, Connor. And she had a feeling uh, a bad feeling where this case was going to go. She didn't have the full belief uh, from the people that she worked with entirely until she started digging into the case and she brought it national. And that's where a, a lot of attention was placed on her reporting. Uh, she came to Fox shortly thereafter. She's actually been at Fox longer than I have, though before we both worked at KFI in Los Angeles, before I went to KFI, uh, she was already at Fox, so she's been here longer than I have, and her reporting really is incredible. And it is some of the best reporting in the business, but some of the best crime reporting you will find. And because of her hunch about Scott Peterson and because of her determination, her organization, and her commitment to the truth, she actually won an Edward R. Murrow Award for that reporting. Laura Engel, welcome to Kennedy Saves the World. Wow, what an intro. Thank you very much. Nailed if, it. If I do nothing else in this world, <laughs> introductions are all I have. Oh, man. No, that was you guys. You just brought me back. I mean, I can't. We are actually talking about it now uh, being 20 years this Christmas Eve that Lacey Peterson vanished. And it came at such a an odd time in, in the news cycle. It was slow, you know, it, and, and we do typically have slow news cycles around the holidays sometimes. But on this particular Christmas, um, it, things weren't really popping. And so this story happened and it was in Modesto, California. I'm from Sacramento. So a short jog from Sacramento. I was in L.A. and I went to our news director and I said, we have to go. We have to go. And he said, well, this might just be another missing person case. I said, mm, I don't I don't think so. Yeah, I maybe mean, she freaked out, found her next boyfriend. Sure. Peaced sure. out. It yes. happens. Yeah. Yeah. Rarely, and, uh, almost never. Right. And so uh, off we went and I went up there and we had a radio engineer uh, come with me and we actually built a, a mini radio studio uh, once he was arrested, once Scott Peterson was uh, finally arrested. How um, long did that take? You know, it took a couple of months because she went missing Christmas Eve. This huge search goes on. And then, of course, the Amber Fry comes out, the mistress that he had. She didn't know and he, he was, was on the phone with her, lying about where right. he was. Right. He was at a vigil for Lacey. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm on vacation. Oh, it's beautiful here. Oh, you should see all the lights. Well, the lights were candles. Uh, people were weeping and crying. And he was, you know, he was actually caught... Um, 
smiling. And and I think it was more of an uncomfortable smile uh, that was captured and printed in the paper. Um, but once those recordings, uh, Amber Fry started working with uh, the police um, and said, my friend just brought this to my attention. I had no idea this guy was married. And they said, would you be willing to, to wiretap and do this with us? And she said, yes, the, she was very nervous to do it, but she did. And so those audio recordings ended up being, you know, just key in the trial. Uh, but nonetheless, to answer your question, uh, Lacey's body and the body of her unborn child, Connor, washed ashore around Easter. And that is when he was then arrested once the identities were confirmed and the, you know, the news was out about Amber and then he went off to trial. But that's when we really dug in and um, went up to Redwood City where the trial occurred. And I rented an apartment. I I would say I boarded up my apartment in Hollywood, uh, but I basically gave my two cats to somebody I worked with and said, you've got to watch my cats for me. I've got to go. And we went up to Redwood City so that I could be there for every single moment. And it's not just about the trial coverage and going into the court and getting your press pass and sitting there. It's about the after and the before. And it's sitting outside of jail and seeing who comes to visit him and and being there in the community and going even back to Modesto and being in the park where he claimed she had gone to walk the dog that day. And surely she must have been kidnapped. Um, but, you know, the evidence showed, well, she was eight months pregnant. She wouldn't have been gone that far into the park where you say she might have gone that day. Uh, it was just it was a riveting case. Um, and it's hard to believe it has been 20 years. And here we are 20 years later, and he's trying to get a new trial. He was just moved from San Quentin, his death sentence overturned, still has life in prison without the possibility of parole, and just moved to Northern California to Ione, which is cattle country. I know because my family lives there. And it's bizarre that he is at this prison that's on an old dirt road. But that's where he is now. And what is how does that prison compare to San Quentin? It is, you know, when you look at the list and I don't have it in front of me, but the list of prisoners that are there are really substantial bad people. Uh, really. So it's maximum security. It is maximum yeah. security. Yes. And uh, but San Quentin is is where there was death row and where those inmates were he held um, like a fortress, as you know, um, in the Bay Area. So um, but this is just really in the middle of nowhere. In fact, when I was working at KFBK, before I went to KFI, we would always report that there were prisoners that were um, that they would take them out for fire coverage that, you know, the low um, the low security ones would be um, they, they would dip in and try and get some inmates to help with the wildfires. Um, but it's really in the middle of nowhere. It, and it will certainly be interesting to see how this plays out because it's all about to happen. So what are the chances um, one of and I remember you covering this juror because there was there was a young woman with bright pink hair and I wanted to high five her because she sounded like she had great style. And, um, you know, you were you were assessing their their countenance, their appearance, their reactions, their facial expressions during all the testimony. And um, her nickname was Strawberry Shortcake. Did you give her that nickname? Uh, I I don't think it was me. I think it was actually Nancy Grace. I think that that was uh, somebody blurted that out um, during some 
some uh, debrief after. Uh, so everybody started calling her Strawberry Shortcake because she had that bright pink hair. And her name is Rochelle Nice. And now the entire case hinges on her. That is the whole reason that he could possibly get a new trial because when she was doing voir dire, when she was being interviewed by the attorneys, um, talking about her past, she never revealed that she herself had been the victim. Of... But did they ask her about that? Did they ask her specifically about that? Well, they asked... And is that is it your responsibility to bring that up? I, I mean, I feel like if a defense attorney or prosecutor has a specific question, they have to ask that question. Right. Well, I, I think the way the questionnaire was, was have you been, you know, ever been a victim of a crime? And I think her... Her belief was that she wasn't the victim of a crime. It was a domestic dispute in her mind. It was she was pregnant and the father of her child's then girlfriend had threatened her. And there was, you know, there was a lot of squabbling going on. She was fearful at that time. So but in her mind, sitting in that box being questioned, I think that she thought and I'm just, you know, paraphrasing from all the interviews that she has given and the the things that she has written was that she goes, I didn't really I didn't put it together that that's what you meant. Was I the victim of a crime? Yes. I mean, has someone ever opened your mail? You were the victim of a crime. Right. You know, it, it has, exactly. Has someone ever run a red light when they were driving you in a car? You've been the victim of a crime. So, I mean, I, I think that she has a good rationale for. If if she didn't call the police and mm-hmm. no one was arrested and no one was charged, does that constitute right. a crime? Right. Especially, you know, depending on how you've grown up. If you've grown up in a situation where there is a lot of violence, right? you know, maybe you consider that like a bad home life, but maybe not a criminal home life. So. That's right. And last year, I went back to Redwood City when Scott Peterson returned to that very courtroom for the very first time since he was sentenced all those years ago. And I, I had called up and nobody wanted to talk. Right. So the jurors are like, we're done. We've done our duty. We you know, some of them took part in writing a book. Um, and I talked to two jurors about their decision um, about this case. And they said, if this gets retried, first of all, it would be tragic for them as jurors for their work to be thrown out. And it would be tragic for them to see the family have to live through that again. Uh, but they said, look, if you do another trial, they believe it would be the exact same outcome. The fact that this juror, you know, and, and the defense's idea is that she shouldn't have been on the jury because she had it out for Scott because she was the she was the victim of this domestic case. And therefore, she wanted to convict Scott Peterson because she wanted to punish him for something that happened to her in the past. That's that's the idea of trying to put the reason behind getting well, they have to prove that right so but that aside the two jurors that i spoke to at length said okay we understand that but if you go through the entire motion all again and you talk about the boat and the anchors that he made and the phone calls to amber and just the, everything else it's going to come out with this it's like you know war games it's going to be the same outcome over and over again in their mind. i minds. mean wasn't he looking up the currents in the bay yeah he was looking up the currents in the bay and don't forget he went to a christmas party with amber fry shortly before lacy went missing while lacy went to a christmas party that he was supposed to go to and there's a famous picture of her in a beautiful red jumpsuit and she's smiling and she is full of pregnancy and she's in this chair and you're looking at her and that very night scott peterson was at a different party miles away with amber fry telling her he recently lost his wife 
And, oh, I'm so sorry, Scott. You know, like, and, and they got a hotel room and there were strawberries and there was champagne. Oh, and, what a romantic. Yeah. And so like, and so when you put those pieces together and when all of that came out in court, you know, you're sitting there and it's, it's painful to listen to on, on all fronts. Uh, but that was a very big part of the story and a very big um, part that we talked about with the jurors. That is something that they definitely remembered, that they definitely think that they just couldn't get past. Don't go anywhere. More Kennedy saves the world right after this. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Is there anything that has happened in terms of technological advances that would help him? In in the defense's mind, like what do, what arrows do they think they have in their quiver that would exonerate him? Right there have there have been advances in that regard, and I will tell you that we are working on talking. I've been t- texting with Scott's sister-in-law, Janie Peterson, who's married to his brother, and she is steadfast that he is innocent. His defense attorney, Pat Harris, who I've spoken to for many years, believes he's innocent. Believes that this is a case where there, there was a burglary across the street from the Petersons' home the day in question, at the, in the time frame. Um, you know, they were burglars. They got in through the back of the house across the street. Could it be connected? They believe yes. Um, and they want to talk about that And as they're trying to get this new trial. Um, Janie Peterson is um, very passionate uh, that her brother-in-law did not do this, that he was wrongly accused. Um, and what those advancements are, are is what they're trying to get into court and that hopefully we'll we'll hear more about as we move forward. I mean, but who what family member of a handsome sociopath thinks that this person is guilty? You know, it's like O.J. Simpson's family thinks he's innocent. Right. And it's you know, we're programmed to believe that it's it's a defense mechanism, because if we it's easier for us to be capable of believing something that is very improbable if it maintains innocence within our entire clan. Right, right. Yeah, and and that, that makes sense. Uh, but it's not just that belief. I mean, she has, she has gone, I believe she's put herself through law school. And, and, and that's what I want to talk to her about. We're, we're hoping to speak to her before this decision comes down. Um, but she believes wholeheartedly, and, and the whole family has, that there is going to be evidence that shows something else, that the pings in the truck and there's an explanation for the boat and the anchors that he made. And he just didn't like to, you know, talk about the new things that he got. He bought a boat, but he didn't tell anybody about it. He taught himself how to make cement anchors, which you can buy at a store, especially in Northern California, you know, when you're near the bay. Sure. Um, but Why would he, you buy cement anchors? Just curious. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was just cheaper. And remember, he was a fertilizer salesman. So he had, you know, he was dealing with uh, that world and uh, agriculture. And uh, maybe he somebody taught him how to make a You ever bought a boat? I have, actually. (laughs) What's the first thing you do when you buy a boat? You tell everyone you bought a boat. A hundred percent. No one hides a boat. Right. Hair transplant? Maybe. Mm -hmm. Penile implant? Possibly. Boat? No one hides a boat. Right. And and the thing is also is that her uh, the Lacey's father, um, Lacey's mother's husband 
was a fisherman. And so he loved to talk about fishing. Ron Gransky, he's no longer with us, but Ron Gransky, that was one of his things that he said in one of the few interviews he gave was, you know, I loved to fish and I talked about fishing. And and you know what's really interesting is that, remember, so Scott had told the family he had gone fishing on Christmas Eve early in the morning before she went missing or, you know, comes back and she's missing. I was in Modesto and I went across the street and I knocked on the door of the person that lived right across the street from them. And I said, did you see Scott that day when he came back from fishing? She goes, I did. And I said to him, where were you? And he said, oh, I was out playing golf. Stop it. Yeah. That was in my radio piece that uh, you mentioned. Uh, So I and I remember standing at her door and she had the screen open and I was standing there with my microphone. I was like, I'm sorry, what? She goes, well, I said, where were you? And he said, I've been out playing golf, but I'm looking for Lacey. I can't find her. She's missing. And then we hear the story about the fishing trip. And it's like, okay, what? Okay, so I go crabbing with my family. We either go the day after Thanksgiving or a couple days before Christmas. Like, it's always, it's, you know, that time, the Dungeness crab, they're silly with them in on the Oregon coast. So we go crabbing. And that's fine. You know, it's like, we're not hiding anything. We go right. crabbing. We come back. We steam the crab. The crab is cleaned. We eat the crab. It's a family event. It's delightful. There's no shame in fishing on Christmas Eve, especially if you're like, yeah, my wife, she loves making cod sandwiches for Christmas. Right. You know, it's like it's an old tradition, right. you know, dating back thousands of years. And if she doesn't have her cod sandwich, it's not Christmas. Right. So I have to go out and I have to pull some cod out of the water and then finally the holiday can begin. Yeah. There's no shame in that. No. But if, if you're fishing, you're not going to say you're golfing. Right. There's no shame in fishing. No. You know, it's like... Well, there if is. If you were throwing nickels at naked ladies, right? I wouldn't admit that on Christmas Eve to my neighbor. Well, and here's the rub. People did find shame in him going to go drive to Berkeley to go fishing on Christmas Eve when his wife is eight and a half months pregnant and it's early and they have plans. Like, why would that? That was, you know, a the lot only of people reason, brought that okay, up. The only reason I would say this is, you know, once you have a baby, as you know, your time mm-hmm. is not your own. That's so it's like you got to get in the fish and the golf and whatever True. you're going to do. You know, it's like because in a month, yeah, you're going to have a roommate. That's right. For a long time. That's right. But I, I get that. It's still a jerk thing to do. If I were eight and a half months pregnant on Christmas Eve, I wouldn't want to be doing all the work by myself. Right. But I, I don't believe his family. Well, we'll see what happens. Hopefully they'll sit down and talk to us about it and we'll see what this uh, judgment is. But it, it's, you know, strange that it's coming His down. smug, arrogant smile still upsets me to this day. In court? In, in the mug court, shots? yeah. Beforehand, like his phony baloney, mm-hmm. um, just out there looking for the real killers. Right. Well, and that and that was a, a problem that a lot of local reporters said that, you know, he wasn't at the search center. He wasn't at that command post um, where the flyers were being made where, you know, and that's the thing about if you if you look back and you look at those tapes and you listen to the press conferences uh, of Sharon and Brent and the family and their their desperation is tangible. You can feel it. You feel it all the way down into your bone marrow when you're listening to them and, and it hurts and you can you can actually feel it in a physical way how much they are hoping that she is found alive and then when you you know do that contrast sl- that contrast with Scott Peterson and and you hear the phone calls he was really making at that time to Amber Fry and acting you know like he's trying to keep it up 
he's trying to keep up his romance and maybe maybe this uh, thing will, you know, this problem of my wife being missing will go away. Yeah, they usually, those things resolve themselves. Right. They tend to. <laughs> but, you know, that's... They just and, stop looking. They're like, yeah, it's been a couple weeks. And we're good. No, that's actually not how it works. And you're absolutely right because when your family member is missing, and you know this because you have covered these cases, you do whatever you can to get in front of cameras and microphones to get that person's face and name and story out there. So there is an emotional connection. So people look for your missing loved one. That's right. And and that urgency, that is universal when when people are so desperate to bring someone home mm-hmm. and they hold on to any hope they can and they create any hope they can. And he wasn't doing that. That we could see. <laughs> it's the I seeing w- part that's important. I understand. I understand. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. But 20 years, it's hard to believe it has been 20 years. Years And some of the key players in this case, you know, I mentioned Ron Gransky, the stepfather um, who was so present during this trial, um, uh, is no longer with us. And uh, Lacey's father uh, as well. Um, A lot of people have uh, are still not ready to talk about it. Uh, It is still extremely painful. Christmas hurts. The gumball lights on the on the homes and the Christmas trees are a reminder of the loss. Yes. And and what you're missing and two people who mm-hmm. are not there. That's you know, right. it's supposed to be the happiest time in their lives. Their family will be fuller, it will be complete in a matter of weeks and that is taken all away from them and it is cruel and uh I do not believe that Scott Peterson deserves mercy. He has been he has been found guilty by a jury of his peers and I don't think he deserves another trial. He's already not being put to death, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. But your reporting has been phenomenal. And the 20 years uh, since I came to know your reporting, I have loved all the stories that you have just dove right into. I appreciate that. Whether it's Michael Jackson, Gabby Petito, the Murdoch case, which is crazy. Yes. And uh, so many others. I always love seeing you in the hallways to find out what you're working on because your, your work is fantastic. Laura Engel, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. This has been Kennedy Saves the World. I'm Kennedy. For more podcasts from my friends at Fox, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Oh, go ahead and leave me a review while you're there. I'd love to hear what you have to say. You've been listening to Kennedy Saves the World on the Fox News Podcast Network. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.